0: You've tuned in to the Message to King's podcast, where we tell the complete history. Joshua and Caleb were carefully walking through a lush valley in Canaan, approaching the valley of Eshkol. The men were in disguise, wearing the covering of the people of Canaan, hiding the best they could their beards. But what was unmistakable was their sandals. They still wore the same sandals that they wore out of Egypt, and there was no wear upon them. Have you ever seen one? Caleb said as they walked down a dirt path into a giant field heading up the hill. What? Joshua said. One of the giants, Caleb whispered. I haven't, but Moses talks to them. Korah even said he saw one in Pharaoh's court. He said he was gigantic. His muscles and body were huge, but his face was kind of distorted. He said the Pharaoh would bring him in when others questioned him just to intimidate and infuriate them. I haven't seen one. How tall do you think they are? Joshua looked at his friend as they walked. He was sincere, not fearful, just curious as to these giant men. They say the ones in Egypt are tiny compared to the ones in Canaan. Korah said the ones in Egypt were 15 feet tall. Just then they heard a sound and slowed down as they approached a crossroads. The men took cover and they watched local Canaanites walk by. This was when they started to hear new sounds from over the hilltop. It sounded like metal working. There was deep, deep, very deep voices and the sound of men working. They jumped back on the path and continued their approach up the hill as they continued talking about the giants. Their armor must be made by expert craftsmen. Their shields and swords would be impossible to yield. It is no wonder the citadels and castles we have seen so far look so impregnable. Check out this fruit, Caleb said as he plucked a fruit from a tree. It's huge. Don't eat it, Joshua said. I hope the rest of the spies follow Moses' instructions and do not eat of these trees. It's just like Adam and Eve. Hobad the Kenite said the fruit is not of this earth. He has been asking the people of the land about the fruit. No one will tell him the origin of the seeds in this tree and all the others. They say the seeds are a secret as old as the land and the giants that inhabit it. The sounds over the hill began to increase as they approached the top of the hill. They walked quietly to the hill very slowly and silently until Joshua spoke. Moses says We have to kill them all. Caleb didn't answer him as they topped the hill and looked down. Moses says, we have to kill them all. Joshua said again, just as they topped the ridge and witnessed the valley of Eshkal below. The scene was incredible, like an advanced civilization with giants with huge orchards, a massive multi-storied fortress, and advanced aqueducts. There were hundreds of Canaanites with wagons and donkeys supporting the 30 giants, working the orchards reaching high into the trees at harvest time. A few giants were carrying stone boulders and placing them in a formation to handle the harvest that was being dumped into these walled areas. The giants or Nephilim were twice as large as the ones in Egypt, and had huge arms and legs. Each of the giants were proportioned different, while each one had a distinguishable yet almost deformed face with ogre-like features and varying facial hair. Joshua finished his sentence as Caleb was taking the scene in. We have to kill them all. They are not of this world. God did not create them. They are a mixed, hybrid, demonic race that has stolen our inheritance. This is the land of Abraham. This is the land of our fathers. And we must retake it from them. Episode 21, The Spies the Nephilim, and Rebellion. What you just heard was a fictionalized account of the Numbers 13 Espionage Mission. Before we go over the entire story, we need to backtrack to Mount Sinai and how they got to Canaan. At the end of the last episode, the Israelites were parked at Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments, and they built the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And before they roll out, they conduct the first census, where we get the number of 600,000 or so Israelites. Numbers 1 gives a complete census of each tribe. Numbers 2 gives an account of the arrangement of the tribes and marching orders. There's something really fascinating about the arrangement of the tribes in Numbers 2. Three of the tribes form to the north above the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the center of the arrangement of the tribes. Three tribes are to the east, three to the south, and three to the west, where the Ark of the Covenant remains in the middle. The three tribes to the north are smaller than many of the other tribes, and if one was to look down upon the marching or camped Israelites, it would resemble a cross. This is one of the possibly hundreds of snapshots of Jesus in the wilderness, I don't know the origin of this statement, but it is so true, and I've heard it from so many people. The statement is, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Many things occur before they advance to Canaan, but I want to cover two of them. The silver trumpets and the Nazarite vows. Here's the account and requirements of being a Nazarite. Number six. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink, and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. And during the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be put or used upon his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long, and throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonial unclean on account of them, because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head." Throughout this period of this separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. Famous Nazarites in the Bible are Samson and Samuel. But it's not just limited to the Old Testament. Now I've actually met people today who have made Nazarite vows, some very short-term and some long-term. Alright, so the silver trumpets are pretty fascinating as well. Here's the account of the silver trumpets From Numbers 10, verse 1, 2, and 8 through 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make two trumpets of hammered silver, and use them for calling the community together and for having the camp set out. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feast and new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. These verses are the biblical source of those who play shofars today. If you go to most Jewish temples or even Messianic Jewish churches today, you will see ram's horns and sometimes tons of these ram horns. And they blow them in worship and praise and in prayer, just like it says, If an enemy is oppressing you, namely sin, sound a blast from a trumpet and the Lord will rescue you. When the time comes for the Israelites to move from Mount Sinai, the cloud that is hovering above the tabernacle moves ahead of them in the direction they are to march in. This will be the way of staying and marching during their stay in the wilderness. God will lead them, and they will follow. The cloud lifts, and they march for three days and arrive in the desert of Paran. Here is the account at Paran, Numbers 11. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Moses, the intercessor, really steps up here and delivers the people from worse judgment. From here, the Israelites march to a place called Kibroth Hadeva. Here the Israelites cry out for quail, and what they're really doing is they're crying out for meat, and the Bible even says that they are craving meat. Remember this occurred before in the wilderness, now the Israelites are doing it again. This time, their frustrations get so aggressive, Moses is threatened, and he is very, very frustrated, and he goes to God complaining, saying the people are too much to govern. He even tells God the burden is too heavy for him to carry the people. In turn, God allows 70 elders to be raised up for the country. And then God sends quail down for a month, but on the first day, the quail comes and rests on the ground as high as 3 feet above the ground. But as the people gorge on it, and before they could process their food, God strikes them with the plague. All right, so, you know, what's what's going on here? It, there seems to be a lot more detail. If you look at Psalm 78, it helps to explain what's going on. It says that the people craved, or the better word that is, they lusted over the meat. Lust is defined as an uncontrollable or illicit sexual desire or appetite. And that's a that's a current popular definition today. It's fascinating to see how the definition today relates sexual desires and even appetite in one sentence. Basically, they longed the Israelites longed for meat uncontrollably to the point of excess. It became their craving, showing no restraint they desired it almost over themselves. Willing to do away with everything that was important to them. That's basically what lust is. An uncontrollable desire for something. Which is, in spiritual terms, is a surrender to darkness and sin. This scene is a picture of that spirit at work today. The people had a desire for something that was so uncontrollable, they desired it more than God, truth, and their relationship with Him. So much so, this craving or hunger replaced their hunger for God. God's answer was to allow them to have their heart's desire. But unfortunately, sin has its consequences. Next, the Israelites venture to Hazaroth. This is where Aaron and Miriam rebel against Moses. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard us. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out of the tent of meeting all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy, and he said to Moses, "'Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed.' Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confided outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she brought was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. Alright, so why did Miriam and Aaron do this? It is mysterious for a few reasons. They were arguing about his Cushite wife. Well, wasn't he married to Zipporah, the Midianite woman? I thought Moses only had one wife. Well, if you remember back in the Royal Training of Moses episode, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he married an Ethiopian princess after a battle. Well, Ethiopia and Sudan were commonly referred to as Cush. So maybe Josephus was right, and Moses actually had another wife. Before we move on from the scene, here's Aaron again being manipulated by people just as he was at the time of the golden calf. He is so strong when he is next to Moses, but he is so weak when he is away from him. At this point, when it says they're in the desert of Paran, they're pretty much near Kadesh, which is at the bottom of Canaan, and they're preparing for the invasion of the Promised Land. It's pretty hard to give exactness as to their journey, because the starting point is so questionable, which is you know, which site do you use for Mount Sinai and so forth. But at this point, they're they're at Kadesh, which is at the bottom of Canaan. Prior to invading the land, it was decided that one spy from each of the 12 tribes would go into the land and spy it out. Caleb was from the tribe of Judah, and Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. Now there's 10 other spies that are going to go in the land as well. So now we're to that point of the beginning of the podcast. Here is the account: Numbers thirteen seventeen. Moses sent them to explore Canaan. He said, "Go up through the Negev and onto the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they walled or unwalled? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor?" Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land, for it was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Sin as far as Rehob toward Lebe They went up to the Negev and came to Hebron, where the descendants of Enoch lived. When they had reached the valley of Eshchol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Ashkel because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of forty days they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them the whole assembly and showed them all the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went in the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the sentence of Enoch there. The Amiclites live there, and the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. This is a fascinating account. Absolutely incredible. It is so fantasy-like. Giants... Nephilim, gigantic fruit, and huge, walled, advanced cities. Now let's listen to the courage and aggressiveness of Caleb with Joshua's support. Numbers 13.30 Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Now we listen to the fear-based report from the ten other spies. Numbers 13.31 but the men who had gone up with them said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those who live in it. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw the descendants of Enoch there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. So the facts of all the spies were the same. Giants, walled cities and danger. But these ten spies took the report to a new level, and they believed more in the fear of man than God. They took their circumstances and believed more in them than God. They feared man more than God. This is where we arrive at the spiritual concept of the fear of man. We addressed lust earlier, but now we are seeing what is controlling the Israelites. It is the fear of man. Could it be they ate from the fruit of the land, spiritually and physically? To be clear, the Bible didn't say Moses said to not eat at the fruit, but clearly God didn't want them to eat the spiritual fruit of the Canaanites. Joshua and Caleb were ready for war, like David who shouted to Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, Instead, the other Israelites were controlled by the fear of man. We'll see this specific fear with King Saul, many podcasts from now, where man controls people's decisions and the fear of them, not the fear of God, influences all that they do. The fear of man can range from very simple to complex to very controlling behavior. It leads people to compromise and sin, willing to please someone, anyone, over God. The fear of man allows man to be vulnerable to sin and all sorts of evil. A fear of man lays a snare and keeps us from bearing fruit in our lives. Upon the return of the spies, the people of the community raised their voices and wept out loud. They grumbled against Moses, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, for we are going to die in this new land. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They even suggested they get a new leader. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole community. Then Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. Here's the rest of the account, Numbers 14. Joshua and Caleb said to the whole Israelite community, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole Israelite community talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have before and among them? I will strike them down with the plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a great nation greater and stronger than they. Now Moses, recognizing that judgment was coming, Moses the intercessor again steps in to save the Israelites. This time he prays to God and he he goes to the Lord and he says, Why would you kill these people? Why would you do this? These are your people. And he says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. And he concludes, In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So, what happens next is basically the Israelites, since they decided not to walk into their inheritance, they don't receive it. I mean, they're not willing to battle the giants, they're not willing to go in. Um, so, the Lord's consequence for them is that they had to wander in the desert for 38 more years. And every one of the generation 20 years and older um, would die in the desert, with the exception of two people. Joshua and Caleb, it says that the Israelites disobeyed and tested God 10 times at this moment. And there's also 10 spies who had the bad report. And the judgment against the 10 spies was that they received a plague and died almost instantly. When Moses reported this all to the Israelites of their judgment, and that they would be wandering in the desert for years, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up towards the high hill country, almost like they wanted to take it by force. It was there motivated by guilt or shame. And they said, we have sinned. They said, we will go up to the place the Lord has promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them, all the way down to Hormah. This final action is a really good example of Um, Doing things not out of faith, um, not doing things out of God's will, or doing things that are not out of passion. Instead, they literally went to war out of guilt and shame. Literally, they were going against the Canaanites in the same spirit of the Canaanites of fear. And the Canaanites beat them badly. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'd like to suggest God is preparing His people for a destiny and calling. There is a time and place when your gifts and talents will come together with your preparation and learning to fulfill the reason you were created. Take in all that you have learned, and be strong and take courage and put your faith in God. Because when the giants are in front of you, you will falter if you believe it is in your power to fulfill your destiny. No. No. It is God who will empower you to fulfill your purpose and walk into your promise. God will defeat the giants in your life. The Israelites forgot so quickly that God destroyed the principalities of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, and provided for them time and time again. It was this spiritual blindness that led them to the fear of man more than God. When man is placed with a giant in front of him, He must remember preparation has already occurred, and victories, no matter how small, were preparation for this moment. When David faced Goliath, he went in to see Saul. He said, I killed a bear and a lion, and I can take this giant. Let me fight him. We must remember what God has done, so that he will do it again. Lest we forget the victories God has granted us, and we never face the giants who have stolen our inheritance, And must return it. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week when the Israelites turn to outright rebellion, which leads to a generational redemptive story all the way to the time of King David. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.